how it lights my path, how it guides my way. Good. We're so pleased this morning that David is going to preach to us in just a moment. Such a joy. But um, as we prepare our hearts, then Alex is going to read the scriptures to us. Alex, come and read for us. And if you want to follow it along, you can look up Luke chapter 7. Thank you. So we're looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17 this morning. So Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. It has a little title in my Bible, Jesus Raises a Widow's Son. Let's read the word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. Amen. I'd love to pray for you, David, as you speak to us. Yeah, Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it's a light, it's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So, Holy Spirit, prepare our hearts to receive your word today. And thank you for your servant, David, Lord, who you have prepared to share and to teach your word to us this morning. Bless and anoint him as he does that, we pray. Strengthen him from his inner man, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Bless you, David. Thank you. I promise. I've recently returned from visiting my son and his wife in Washington. And um, because I'm sort of pretty um, disabled or increpid or whatever you call it, my son books airport assistance for me. So that as soon as I arrived, they put me in a wheelchair, they zipped me through customs. And uh, in Washington, there was an, an oldish lady who was pushing me. And, um, and she said to me, you help me and I'll help you. <laughs> and uh, I said to her, I, and I didn't carry any dollars because I paid everything by credit card. You see, I didn't have any. I said, I'm sorry, I've uh, got no dollars at all. She said, oh, no, 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 not money. You pray for me, and I'll pray for you. And she'd come from Kabul, so I guess she was 
likelihood was Muslim, so I've been prayed for <laughs> by her. I thought it was a, an amazing thing that she said to me. At least I found it uh, um, quite amazing. Right, Luke 7, great. In Jesus' ministry on earth... Oh, sorry. Yes, yes, I could. No, I do need this one. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Debbie. <clears throat> in Jesus' ministry on earth, as recorded in the Gospels, he raises three people from death to life. In John's Gospel, and it's only recorded in John's Gospel, you have the case of Lazarus, who was the brother of um, Martha and Mary, and, um, and Jesus didn't go straight away when they called him. He waited, and when they got, when they got to Bethany where he lived, um, where Lazarus had lived and with the things, uh, Lazarus was already dead and in the tomb for four days. And then he says, open the tomb, and he prays, and Lazarus cries. And of course, um, the sisters are saying, he's going to be smelling now. He's been dead for four days. He's going to be putrefied. And Jesus just carries on straight, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Oh. The second raising from the dead in the Gospels is recorded in three of the Gospels, in Mark, in chapter 5, in Matthew, in chapter 9, and in Luke, in chapter 8. And it's Jairus' daughter. And it, it occurs. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue in the area where he is, which means he would have been highly respected, um, senior person thing. And um, he sends a message to Jesus, my, uh, my daughter is ill, and will you come and um, heal her? And... Um, and at the same time, as Jesus is going along in the crowd, a woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years, and it's interesting, Jairus's daughter is 12 years old, and so at the time that this issue of blood started for the woman was the time when Jairus's daughter, give or take a few days, was born. And this woman thinks, if only I can touch Jesus's garment, I will be healed. And so she comes and touches his garment, and she's healed instantly. Now, she would have been considered an outcast because if you had an issue of blood like that, you were considered in Jewish society as unclean. So she would have been outcast, not very well respected, not very well um, assimilated into the society. And you've got the other one is a ruler of the synagogue, I was going to say upper class, they didn't have classes, but if you understand what I mean, he was sort of authoritative, well-regarded. And Jesus, the woman doesn't rise from the dead, her blood is stopped, but Jairus' daughter, they, they send a message to her, the daughter has died, um, and Jesus says, I'm going to go, and he goes in and he casts everyone out except the mother and father of the daughter and his three, three of his disciples, and he prays and she is raised to life. So that's the second raising to life. And the third is in the passage that Alex read. Um, again, this one is only found in one gospel. It's only found in Luke. And it's um, um, a young man uh, who lives in the city of Nain. And um, his mother is a widow, and he has died, and he's been carried along in an open coffin. 
Um, and Jesus comes onto the procession that's going, and there's a crowd following this procession, and there's also a crowd following Jesus. So it's um, two big crowds that gather together that will witness this. Um, and <clears throat> Jesus sees this coffin, and he tells the bearers to stop, and he says to the thing, uh, young man, rise up, or get up, or whatever the words are, rise. And uh, he gets up out of the coffin, and everyone is totally amazed. And um, so that's the story we are looking at today. Luke's written these few verses about this man, Nain. Um, because I studied navigation when I was in the military in my uh, youth, very long, long time ago, I'm always tremendously interested in maps. And whenever I look at Jesus' life, I want to know where is he, how did he get there, why did he get there, um, what, what was his route. And it's very easy to think that Jesus just meandered all over the place. But I don't think that, that was ever like that. I think he was so much in prayer and so much in contact with his father that where the father showed him, that's where he was going. So he'd been in, well, let me just do a simple geography of Israel. You've got the area of Judea in the south, and that contains towns like Jerusalem, it contains Bethlehem, it contains Jericho, it contains Masada. And then in between the southern part of Jerusalem and the northern part of Jerusalem, not Jerusalem, of, of, of Israel, was the area of Samaria. And we, I think we only have one story recorded of Jesus doing something in Samaria with the woman by the well. And that well still exists. And when I was there, I drank water from it. <laughs> um, a woman <laughs> lowered her bucket and, and uh, brought it up. And that was year, uh, 20, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, probably. Anyway, um, and then you come to the north, which is Galilee. And that has towns like um, Nazareth, like um, uh, Kitnain. It has Capernaum. Lots of and Galilee is on the mainly on the western and northern side of the, what they call Lake Galilee or the Sea of Genesareth or something like that. And Jesus had been in Capernaum, actually on the northern version uh, shore of the um, Sea of Capernaum at Capernaum, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And um, and then I thought, and if you look in some things, it says the next day. Jesus was in Nain, right? And uh, so I always want to know, well, how far is the And then you find, you look, some versions say, shortly after um, Jesus was in Nain. And it's 35 miles, and it's all uphill. Capernaum is at sea level. Nain is 700 feet above sea level, and it's 35 miles. So if you're walking that distance, I don't know if it's the next day. You know, if you've been healing people in Capernaum, it's unlikely you will have done 30. It's more likely to be a day or so afterwards. But anyway, Jesus walks that um, distance. And then, of course, sorry, I've gone on. In, Galilee, in Israel, there was what we now call Lebanon, the area of Tyre and Sidon. Jesus goes once and he heals um, a woman's daughter, Syrophoenician lady. And there's um, a place called Caesarea Philippi, which is in the Tetrarch. Tetrarchy of Philip, that's up the northeast. And of course, across Lake Galilee, you've got the area where the Gadarene people were. So 
I'm always, when I'm reading, how did Jesus get there? Why did he go there? And as Jesus comes to name, he sees this procession carrying um, the dead body um, of this man. And um, now the interesting thing says it's going towards the gate. Nain was not a walled city. It didn't have gates. But so I, I read the commentary. Well, why did they? And he, they said it was probably a gap between two streets that you went out. You were leaving the city boundary. And uh, it said in the hills there, there are still to this day remnants of tombs that have been cut out into the mountain. So this will have been the journey. It's, it's not that Nain was a walled city with gates like Jerusalem is. It's, it's, a, it's a place which they will have called the gate. This is the way you leave the city and you go to... This is probably not very interesting to you, but it, uh, it, it's the sort of thing I always want to delve into. Why are they saying that? Um, now, you have to realize that this widow was in desperate trouble. Because in, and as far as I've been trying to read up, what is the law of succession? This is a widow who's lost her husband and her only son is dead. And it's very clear it's her only son. And succession or keeping of land and thing depended on the male line. And for her husband to be died and her son, only son to have died, her future was going to be insecure. Maybe she would be taken in by brothers, maybe the land given to somebody else. It's not exactly clear that she could stay on and would own the land. So the story of Jesus meeting this man is very, very significant um, to this young, not young, to this widow whose son was dead. Now, Luke writes... Um, well, it, it's whoever divided up Luke's gospel. Chapter 7 of Luke's gospel has one theme right through it. It is good news. It is good news. It is good news. It is good news. Four different stories in Luke chapter 7 are all proclaiming one thing, good news. The first is the Roman centurion who's got a slave who's very ill, or a servant, it's sometimes said, and he, he says, Jesus, will you come and heal him? He, he loves this servant. He thinks he's a great servant or slave or whatever it is. He's got a good affection for him. And uh, Jesus says, okay, I'm coming. And he says, you know, you don't need to come. I'm a man of authority. And I'm, um, in my place, if, if I say to someone, do something, they have to do it. <laughs> you just tell, <laughs> tell this uh, servant of mine to get well, and he'll, he'll get well. And Jesus says, I have not found faith like that in the whole of Israel. But the good news is that Jesus heals this man. The second story is the widow of Nain and her son, and Jesus heals the man, raises him from the dead. The next story is about John the Baptist. He's now in prison. He's worried. He knows that he is be, to be the, the forecomer or the forerunner of the Messiah. And he's thinking, here I am in prison. Is it happening? Is it true? Are you the man? And Jesus sends the disciples. He says, go and show John. Go and tell John's disciples. Go and show the things that I am doing. And John will be able to see that I am definitely the Messiah because of all the things that he sees me doing. 
And the last is about a woman who was, they just say she, she had a sinful life, um, the equivalent possibly of a prostitute in our, whatever happens, she would be disowned, disliked, not accepted, and, um, and she comes and anoints Jesus' feet um, with this very expensive perfume, and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. So it's good news for the woman, it's good news for the centurion, it's good news for the widow of Nain, and it's um, good news for John the Baptist. That's what Luke chapter 7 is about. If you've got the message, it's good news, good news, good news, good news. It says that when Jesus saw the widow, he had compassion. Now, I am never, ever have studied Greek in my life. I found Latin hard enough. I'd never, ever thought of even trying. We had to learn the Greek alphabet because we used it in mathematics, but we, we never learned any Greek. But I read, and maybe Debbie will correct me later, that the Greek word used for compassion has to do with intestines. And, um, and we have the same sort of thing. When we feel something deeply, we say, I can feel it in my guts, don't we? Or it's a gut-wrecking situation. It's, it's something that is very, very deep. It's not an intellectual thing. I may look at a widow and say, it's a great pity she's lost her son, you know, losing her support and things like that. And, and I can make an intellectual decision. Compassion is much deeper than that. It's deep inside of Jesus. Jesus has compassion for this woman. And it's also mentioned in two other stories that Jesus, or that there was compassion, in the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan who is a Samaritan and comes down and picks up the, uh, the wounded traveler and bathes him and puts oil on his wounds and sends him to a hotel, it says the Good Samaritan had compassion. He didn't make an intellectual decision of pity. He had something deep within inside him that made him act. And in the story of the prodigal son, when the, the son has been reckless, run away, and then he comes to his senses when he's poor and he's got nothing to eat and he thinks, I'll go back to my father. It says, the father had compassion on the son. Not an intellectual decision, I'll have him back. Right something deep within him flowed. And I want to say that Jesus is somebody He's not only good news, he has compassion in the deepest sense for all people. For whoever comes to him, whatever their situation, wherever they've been to, whatever they've endured in their life, whatever has made them do what they've done, when Jesus welcomes you, he has deep compassion at a deep level. Whether you've done something wrong, something bad, something you wouldn't dare tell other people about, you can come to Jesus because he brings, firstly, good news and he brings compassion. Jesus says to the woman, don't weep. 
Weep not, a dead son can become a live son. The crowds witnessed this. There were two crowds. One, those who'd been following Jesus from Capernaum, and one who'd been following the widow's um, funeral procession. And I guess she must have been a well-known woman for lots of people to gather and, and, and go to the funeral. The same message is true for us. Do not weep for those who have died in Jesus. In the book of um, Thessalonians, whoops, let me get it right the right way. Chapter 4, this is what the uh, Christians are written to. Um, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. He means those who've died. Or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, that's absolutely clear. He's saying, I mean, just as he said to the woman, you know, do not weep. He's saying to any of us who've lost someone that has been beloved to us, and uh, we found it very painful. He, if they have died in the Lord, you don't weep. You don't need to weep for them. Yes, of course, you'll, be, you'll, be, you'll miss them and all those sort of things. But if they have died with the Lord, they will be with the Lord when we, if we haven't died in the meantime, rise and meet the Lord when he comes. John, Jesus touches the coffin. And it was um, in Jewish thing, if you touched a dead man or touched that, you were unclean for a week. And you had to go through various rituals. And the Lord puts mercy and love above local rules. Not local, they, got, they were God's rules about cleanliness. And, and, and you'll find the rules of cleanliness in the Numbers, book 19. The young man was dead. He could not rise by any power of his own. Jesus would bid him rise, and he did so by the power of Jesus. The young man rises, and Jesus gives him to his mother. There's a passage in um, Ephesians, chapter 2, which I just quickly want to read to you. Paul is writing about those who are living but still that are dead. And he says, As for you, you who were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world 
and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the desires and thoughts. And it goes on to explain that you can be dead while still alive in trespasses and sins, dead to, the, to God. So there are living dead people who are all around us. Those who do not know Jesus are living dead people until the light of the gospel illumines them. And that's our responsibility. You will know plenty of people who are living dead, I believe, unless you live in the most amazing um, household or work or wherever you are. There are living dead, and it's our responsibility to proclaim Jesus to them. As Jesus, when Nicodemus, this learned leader, came to visit Jesus, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You must. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born? I'm an old man. I might have gone to my mother's room. He doesn't understand it. And Jesus says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's you find in John's Gospel, chapter 3. The dead young man, in this case, in name, gets up and begins to speak. And Jesus gives him back to his mother. And the people say, he is, uh, this is a great prophet who has risen amongst us. And why do they say that? It's because of the story of Elijah. Do you remember the story when Elijah says there's not going to be any rain for the next uh, three and a half years? And there is no rain, and they're short of food, and Elijah's short of food. And he goes to a widow in Zarephath, and she says to him, I've only got one little measure of food, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make my last meal for my son and myself, and then we're going to die. Because there's no food. And Elijah says to her, you make, use that stuff to make me a little cake. Use the rest for your family. And I promise you that the oil and the flour will not run off, run out, until rain comes again to refresh the earth. And that's what happens. It goes on for months, I think, and the, the, the oil never runs out, the, uh, the flour in the pot doesn't run out, and Elijah is fed. And then what happens is the boy, the son of this woman, dies. And she says, oh, man of God, you know, you, you saved our lives. What about now? And David says, give him, Elijah says, give him to me. And he takes him up to a room, and he lies down on him, and he breathes on him, and then the boy comes to life. And Elijah, to the Jews, was a great prophet. And so they're saying, they're seeing in Jesus, saying to this boy, get out of, uh, or young man, get out of the thing. He's a great prophet. He's like Elijah was. They would have known that story from childhood about Elijah. Jesus did not ask the young man to become one of his disciples. He didn't carry him around like as a trophy. Look at him. I raised him from the dead. He, the young man had to go on and live the rest of his life. He knew that he'd been risen. And obviously, 
I'm sure he would have been very into Jesus and very into God. But he wasn't brought as a trophy. This is the man I... Um, it would be so easy, wouldn't it, to, um, to, do, to do that, to show trophies. I was um, reading... Oh, yes, let me just read one more thing from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Um, this is the... Um, Jesus goes into a Nazareth, and, um, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a Dutch theologian um, who I've read occasionally from time to time called Henri Nouveau. He's dead now. But he talks about upward mobility and downward mobility. And he says that um, suppose you're a person and um, you see great need and you decide to um, go and help and run a soup kitchen and provide soup and food for the people in need. Suppose you see a natural disaster and you've got skills, you can go and you can go and use it and you can help, you can use equipment and things like that. He calls that a downward mobility. He's not saying it's wrong in any way. He's saying it's a very important thing. But it is you who are the powerful one who is giving to those who are not powerful, right? It's out of your, the fact that you're not hungry, that you can go and run a soup kitchen and provide soup and do things like that. It's the fact that you haven't been in this natural disaster that you can go and help people who are thinking. It's you are the powerful one, and he calls that a downward mobility. Oh, um, but there's an upward mobility um, where this is what he says Jesus was. Jesus was poor. The, Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was crucified. And his help came not from somebody coming down and looking over them and saying, well, I'll provide this and I'll provide that. It came from him being one of the people going through poverty, going through difficulties. And uh, I just want to... Um, yeah, tell you one story. Somebody once said to me, they wait for my stories. <laughs> um, this was in the 1970s. Um, the firm I was working for had three major tenders to prepare. Uh, one was for extensions to the water treatment works for Bombay. And those of you who correct me and say it was called Mumbai, I'll tell you, it was only called Mumbai in 1995. So when we did this job in 1970s, it was still Bombay. And it's from the Portuguese, meaning good bay um, for ships. Anyway, um, one was for the water supply for extensions for Bombay. The other was for the um, uh, sewage treatment of wastewaters for Bombay. Very big tender again. And the third was for a tender for Syria, uh, the country Syria, for two towns. One was called Latakia, and um, 
the other was called um, Aleppo, which is a major city. had in the news a lot now, a lot of bombing. Uh, it's quite, there's one quite funny story. Um, uh, we were all called for to Aleppo and Latakia. I was actually doing the tender for the Aleppo and Latakia. We were all called to um, Damascus, and they took us around the whole site, the Syrian government. And we were, I think, six different international consultants. One of the consultants was a friend of mine. He was working for a different firm uh, in opposition to me. But um, so we were in, and I, was, I knew I'd have to come home and write this tender out. So I, I, I said to the taxi driver that I was there, take me to the highest point in Latakia. And uh, so this taxi driver took me, and uh, I was up taking snaps of the whole area so that when I went back to write the tender, I could remember what it looked like, what I got to do. And uh, this, this friend of mine, it was actually at the bottom of the hill, and he said to me, David, how did you get up there? And I said, I just asked the taxi driver to take me up. And he said, okay. And the next day, he, just, he spoke to his taxi driver and said, take me up to the highest point. And he went up there, and he was taking photographs, and he was arrested by the Syrian security police. Apparently, there was some secret, <laughs> secret installation there that they didn't want anyone to see. We still remained friends, though he was with them <laughs> for several hours. He told me, I think he said it was more, it was five to eight hours he was grilled by the Syrian. However, that wasn't the story I was going to tell you. Just, <laughs> um, these three tenders that were become, the two of them for, for Bombay had to be delivered on the same day, and the one that had to be delivered to Damascus for Aleppo and Natakia had to be delivered about five days earlier. And the, the partners of the firm um, called me in, and they said, we'd like you to fly out to Bombay with the two tenders, make sure they get delivered on time, and then you can spend a bit of time, look around the construction works there, and then I want you to fly to Damascus, deliver the tender for Aleppo and Natakia, and then you can fly back home to England. And uh, I mentioned this to my grandson. He said, Granddad, they'd never do that now. And I think the answer is, I don't think we did it very often then. But I was delighted to um, go. And I flew out to Bombay, and I delivered the tenders. And then I got these three or four days to go around and look at And I was taken around by the, our representative out there, and um, he was telling me the story that um, Bombay Municipal uh, Corporation hated seeing all the beggars that are on site in Bombay. They thought it spoiled their um, city to have beggars everywhere. And if you've been to some of these countries, you'll know what I'm talking about. There are um, beggars everywhere who are coming to you, approaching you, asking you things. And so uh, Bombay Municipal Corporation said to the contractor, I want you to arrange some buses, and we'll give you the certificates to do it. You'll go and pick up all these beggars, and you'll take them to your construction site, and you'll get them to work. Now, I can't remember the figure. It, it was somewhere between 200 and 500 beggars that the contractor... It was a very big site, but... Uh, and so the, 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 um, the contractor did this. It was Bombay trying to clear up their city, trying to get rid of the problem of beggars on the streets. And... Uh, the contractor gave, uh, there was a big mound of earth that had been, was spoiled. They'd been digging out for, trend, for tanks and things. And they gave each of the beggars a, a shovel and said, we want you to start digging into this mound, pay, put it into wheelbarrows, take it and dro drop it. 
My, my friend who was the resident engineer said to me, after one hour, there were six left. I think he initially told me there were 500. There were six beggars left. And by the end of the day, not a single beggar left. But they all took their shovels with them. <laughs> now, that is compassion the wrong way, isn't it? I think beggars, A, wouldn't be equipped to do hard manual labor. Um, they, they've not spent their life doing it. But it, it's a sort of typical bureaucratic way. This is how you sort the problems out. And, it's, um, and it, it does never work. Yes, do support soup kitchens. Do send money to disaster. Of course, we, we often can't do anything else except give of our best. But Jesus came amongst us so that he could lift us up. And he was poor, poorer than we are, poor in everything. Jesus did not reach down to lift the poor up. From above, he became poor. He suffered. He was crucified. It was the only way to redeem us. My, my one plea is that we will get a clear picture of the people we live who need Jesus, that Jesus is good news. It's sometimes very hard to persuade them that Jesus is good news. But we are in places, I'm no longer in it, in, of work, in places in families, in societies of different sort. We have a, a job on our hands that we have come from death to life and we are, as I said, we are walking among the living dead. May God so move us that we really take hold of the challenge. Amen. Let your living word abide in me so As I abide in you, let your lead.